Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.4, Livia Drusilla, The Anti-Cleopatra. Today, we are going to be continuing the story of Livia, following her transition from being the wife of Octavian to the wife of Augustus, and de facto Empress of Rome. But before we get going, I have some new Patreon patrons to thank, and they are Krista, Melissa, Leith, and Elizabeth. Thanks so much for coming aboard, guys. I really do appreciate it. If you'd like to join these amazing people and become a supporter of the podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. Remember, you can get all the latest news from the show on the Facebook page and find out more about it on the website, which you can find at theotherhalfpodcast.co.uk. If you are new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. When Livia married Octavian, she was a few weeks shy of 20, and had already given birth to two healthy children, Tiberius and Drusus. Octavian himself was 24, and had a single daughter called Julia with his previous wife. Now Octavian had not yet managed to turn Rome into essentially a hereditary dictatorship yet, and it isn't even certain that that was how he envisaged the endgame at the time. Therefore, to say that he married Livia specifically so that he may have lots of sons who could succeed him as emperor is by definition anachronistic and wrong. However, it is likely that such a thing had crossed his mind, and even if it hadn't, he would still want sons to continue his line. He could adopt Livia's sons from her previous marriage, he could even adopt from outside the family, but that wasn't his preference. Livia's three primary advantages as a wife were, when looks at it purely practically, her nobility, youth, and proven fertility, and those two last ones are crucial here. There was a clear hope in this marriage that Livia would be able to give her new husband the sons that he wanted that would, one day, continue his legacy. But she didn't. We have no good reason to explain it. 
In over a half century of marriage, Livia only conceived once, and it ended in stillbirth. Now that is, on its own, interesting, but it also raises some other interesting questions. In Roman culture, it was not considered unusual for a husband to divorce a wife if she failed to provide a son. As in so many other periods of time, infertility was considered solely a female fault. Octavian had already disposed of two other wives before he even reached the age of 25, and that was before he reached the height of his political powers. If he had wanted to divorce Livia because of her inability to give him a child, then he could have done so. The fact that he didn't tells us a lot about the affection that he held for her and the respect he gave her other qualities. Yes, these included a family lineage, but there were other noblewomen out there as well. Octavian decided to stick with Livia. But we are getting a little ahead of ourselves here. We left off last week with Livia's marriage to Octavian in 37 BCE. What happened next for Livia? Well, she moved in with her new husband to a new home on the Palatine Hill. Remember that, for the moment, her children were with her ex-husband, as was customary under Roman law, and her husband's daughter was living with her mother, which was more unusual, but understandable given all the demands on Octavian's time. Now, as with so many other facts about this period, we don't know a whole lot about what went on in Livia's life over the next ten years, between her marriage and her becoming an empress. However, we do know from piecing together other sources what life was like for Roman women at the very top of society. So let's look at that. Normal everyday life for the wealthiest Roman noblewomen can really only be described as one of leisure. When they were in the city, they had the run of most of the amenities and attractions there, only being banned from the political public buildings such as the Senate. There were religious services and festivals to attend, as well as plays, public games and chariot races to go to. They would also have villas in the country where they would go in the summer, all of which would have their own distractions. And that is before we get to the parties. Romans loved a good dinner party, and of course it was the job of the lady of the house to put these on. Unlike in, say, ancient Athens, these were not segregated events and so women and men reclined together on the couches, eating the finest foods served to them by slaves. Now, equality on such occasions only went so far. To attend these parties, they needed a male chaperone, when no such impediment was placed on men. It was extremely frowned upon for them to drink excessively, while in men it was considered perfectly reasonable, and they were also expected to pipe down when conversation moved to manly topics, such as politics and literature. But life for Livia wasn't all leisure and parties. She had other duties about the house to perform. She was in charge of the household, and given how many people were required to run a large family estate, that was no small thing. There were also guests to receive, both for her husband, but also for herself, for she had her own influence. Most of Livia's house callers would have been women, but it was not unheard of for men to come to her either, asking for her assistance in some matter or another. It seems that this was in large part Livia's life in her first decade or so of marriage. But events in Rome and overseas would change everything, elevating her to an altogether higher plane. So when we left off at the end of the last episode, the Roman Empire was still divided in two. Antony ruling in the east, and Octavian in the west. There was considerable tension between these two men, and they had already fought each other a few times, 
but for now an uneasy peace reigned, largely thanks to the marriage between Octavian's sister, Octavia Minor, and Mark Antony. At this point, Octavia, not Livia, was the most important woman in the Roman world. She was largely credited with having prevented war from breaking out between her brother and husband, and thus was drawing on some of the legendary examples of Roman female peacemakers, such as Veturia and Volumnia. She appeared on Roman coinage, and her profile could not have been higher. But, as a future royal bride would say, there were three people in her marriage, and it was a little crowded. When Antony headed out to the east in 37 BCE, he left his wife and children in Rome under Octavian's protection. He claimed that this was for their own safety, as he was planning a long campaign against the Parthians, the successor state to the Persian Empire. Now that may have had a kernel of truth to it, but the real reason was so that he could shack up with one of history's greatest seductresses and survivors, the Egyptian pharaoh Cleopatra. Now, I'm not going to go into detail in Cleopatra, as her life is far too interesting to sully with a perfunctory description, and more importantly, I would love to talk about it more in detail in a dedicated series. But I do have to briefly introduce her. She came to power largely thanks to Julius Caesar, and in return she became his mistress and joined him in Rome, causing significant muttering and discontentment that I will get into in a second. After his assassination... She returned to Egypt, and it was while in the East that her legendary affair with Mark Antony began. Their relationship began while Antony was still married to Fulvia, but it reached its height in the late 30s BCE while he was married to Octavia. Now, the most important thing to note at this point was the Roman stereotype of what can be described in air quotes as the East. Romans saw themselves as stoic, manly, martial, the inheritors of the Greek tradition, though maybe not quite as effeminate as those Athenians. The people of the East, though, best exemplified by the Parthians and the Egyptians, were portrayed as being soft. They lived in the lap of luxury. They wore many different kinds of eyeliner. The men even wore makeup. They had nothing of Roman morality, Roman fidelity, Roman virtue, Roman courage. These were oversexed, effeminate men who were dominated by their whorish, haughty wives and mistresses. Now, of course, it is vital to note at this point that our version of history is heavily influenced by the Octavian smear campaign that was launched against Antony and Cleopatra. Our entire view of the final battle between Octavian on one side and Antony and Cleopatra on the other is severely tainted by sources who bought into this narrative. Probably the two most famous adaptations of this story are Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra and the Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton film Cleopatra in 1963, and both the immortal bard and the makers of the film took as their main source the Roman writer Plutarch, who we know liked to mix in a little from his own imagination along with his facts. But of course, what is interesting in this story is exactly this, why Octavian wanted the narrative that has survived to us to turn out the way it has. Antony's wife Octavia had been an instrument for peace, the glue that was holding the alliance between him and Octavian together. In fact, she was more than that, as that description fails to recognise her agency. She had been a big part in the drawing up of that treaty herself. Her immense importance in this situation was thoroughly apparent to her brother, but not to her husband, who had abandoned her in Rome to be with his royal mistress. What Octavian was doing then, in this period, was biding his time, 
waiting for the perfect moment to strike. That time came in 35 BCE. Antony had led a huge Roman army into Parthia, supported by Egyptian troops, but it had turned into a humiliating disaster in the previous year. Octavian let his sister Octavia go to Athens with reinforcements and supplies, not for altruistic reasons, but, according to Plutarch, quote, in order that, in case she were neglected and treated with scorn, he might have plausible ground for war. All she found when she arrived in Greece were letters forbidding her to go any further. The sources portray Antony as being so dominated by his foreign mistress that he not only completely abandoned his wife, but also refused to press the attack against Parthia, instead returning to the pleasurable embraces of Cleopatra. Plutarch, in particular, is completely sickening in his attempts to portray Octavia as the wrong party and blameless for everything. Remember that, when the sources talk of Caesar, they refer to Octavian. Quote, As for Octavia, she was thought to have been treated with scorn, and when she came back from Athens, Caesar ordered her to dwell in her own house. But she refused to leave the house of her husband. Nay, she even entreated Caesar himself, unless on other grounds he had determined to make war on Antony, to ignore Antony's treatment of her, since it was an infamous thing even to have it said that the two greatest generals in the world plunged the Romans into civil war, the one out of passion for, and the other out of resentment in behalf of, a woman. These were her words, and she confirmed them by her deeds. For she dwelt in her husband's house just as if he were at home, and she cared for his children, not only those whom she herself, but also those whom Fulvia had borne him, in a noble and magnificent manner. Without meaning it, however, she was damaging Antony by this conduct of hers, for he was hated for wronging such a woman. This, this, is the perfect example of what Roman writers wanted their women to be doing. She is so loyal, not just to her husband and brother, but most importantly to Rome, she recognises that her husband has abandoned and humiliated her, and she equally understands that her brother is trying to use her as a pretext to go to war. But instead of choosing between the two, she makes every attempt to maintain the status quo and prevent yet another bloody civil war. To help paint Octavia as this whiter-than-white image of perfection, you need an ultimate villainess to act as her counterpart, the yang to her ying. Here again is Plutarch. Quote, but Cleopatra perceived that Octavia was coming into a contest at close quarters with her, and feared lest, if she added the dignity of her character and the power of Caesar, her pleasurable society and her assiduous attentions to Antony, she would become invincible and get complete control over her husband. She therefore pretended to be passionately in love with Antony herself, and reduced her body by slender diet. She put on a look of rapture when Antony drew near, and one of faintness and melancholy when he went away. She would contrive to be often seen in tears, and then would quickly wipe the tears away and try to hide them, as if she would not have Antony notice them. Cleopatra here is using all the feminine wiles that Roman writers feared. She is using her beauty, her body, and her sexuality to counteract the proper Roman values embodied by Octavia. She is using every trick in the book here, and it manages to overpower what qualities her rival has to the detriment of all. So, once again, we have here the two poles of womanhood, 
the Eve and the Virgin Mary. Neither portrayal is especially accurate, but that isn't really the point. What Livia had to do in her life, and at that moment, was do everything Octavia was doing, imbue every one of her characteristics, and avoid being anything like Cleopatra. Now, it is fair to say that Plutarch is not exactly effusive in his portrayal of Octavian either, but like most of the sources, he fails to mention the very good point that he is a massive hypocrite. Octavian was known to have conducted many affairs, and indeed his current wife, Livia, had been his mistress before they had been married. Suetonius quotes a letter from Mark Antony where he points out Octavian's hypocrisy. Quote, What then of you? Do you lie only with Drusilla? Good luck to you if when you read this letter you have not been with Tertulla, or Tarantilla, or Raphilla, or Salvia Titicenia, or all of them. Does it matter where or with whom you take your pleasure? This is all very fair, but Octavian's propaganda game was so much more advanced than Antony's that he was overwhelmed. And Octavia was not the only string to his bow here. He also involved Livia. As I previously mentioned, this propaganda game required Livia to be the perfect example of womanhood and be completely different from Cleopatra. And we can see this in a number of likenesses that were made of her in the 30s BCE. A very famous example of this is the bust that I have chosen as the thumbnail for this episode, which I've also put in the show notes if you can't see it for some reason. The first thing to talk about is the hair. Cleopatra was famed for having a very elaborate hairdo. Livia kept it in a very classically sober Roman style called the nodus. According to historian Matthew Dennison, quote, Current since before Livia's birth, the nodus had strongly republican connotations. It was old-fashioned rather than unfashionable, a political statement as much as a grooming choice. There is also a deliberate attempt here to not make her look too alluring. She looks serious, but also modest. She's not wearing any jewellery, and though we can't easily tell from this bust, she isn't wearing much, if any, makeup. She's not attempting to assert anything except dignity and restraint. Contrast this to a description of Cleopatra from near the time. Quote, Cleopatra, her dangerous beauty heightened by cosmetics, was decked out in the spoils of the Red Sea. Her head and neck felt the weight of her jewels. If you would like to recreate what I shall tentatively dub the Livia look, then I have found, amazingly, a Dutch YouTuber who recreates the historical hairstyles of famous women and has done a video of Livia. I put a link to it in the show notes and also on the Facebook page, and I urge you to give it a watch. Now, I have mentioned before that, in terms of busts and statues, no one can touch Livia. She has so many more than any other woman. There are good reasons for this. One was her great longevity. If you're an empress that lives to the age of 86, then you have much opportunity to be venerated thusly. But the second is that it was not at all common for women to have statues made of them at all. Indeed, we believe that the only women to be so honoured before Livia and Octavia was Cornelia Africana. This was a very conscious decision on the part of the Republic for many of the reasons that I have already mentioned ad nauseam. To produce a statue of someone was to recognise their power and influence, and so for a woman to be the subject of one was pretty extraordinary. To have so many made was downright revolutionary, and it was not just in statues that Livia was honoured. There were coins struck with her face on it too, And these, of course, were far more influential as they were handled and viewed by far more people, far more widely than even a hundred statues would. 
on these coins, she was portrayed in much the same way as she was in sculpture. And so this image of her spread across the empire. Ironically, Octavian used this revolutionary act as a conservative clarion call. He was holding up Livia and his sister Octavia as the true inheritors of the best aspects of Roman virtue. They were following in the footsteps of Lucretia, Volumnia and Cornelia Africana. And to aid this cause, Antony was minting coins with Cleopatra's likeness on it. This too was a revolutionary act, but it went way too far. To put a woman on the coins was one thing, but to put a foreigner on Roman money was bad. The fact that she was a queen? Well, that was just totally unacceptable. Octavian pressed the attack by approving a couple of decrees designed to further increase Livia's profile, as well as that of Octavia. First, they were awarded the right of sacrosanctitas, basically making it illegal to insult them. This was only normally awarded to tribunes, who, of course, were exclusively male. This had as much to do with profile raising as it was a reaction to Antony's supporters' attacks on Livia and Octavia. By extending this privilege, Octavian was raising them above politics as something far greater and more serene. This was compounded by the second privilege given to them, which was the right of tutela, basically meaning that they were emancipated from their husband's financial control. They had full rights over their own money. This was normally only given to the most venerated Roman women, the Vestal Virgins, a small group of Roman priestesses that cultivated the sacred hearth. By associating Livia and Octavia with the Vestal Virgins, while simultaneously making it illegal to insult them and spreading their likenesses across the Mediterranean, Octavian was placing them at the very vanguard of his war of words with Antony. But to say that this was all Octavian's doing is a little unsatisfactory to me, as it imagines both of these women as being very passive agents, like shop window mannequins dressed up in whatever clothes that their owner wants, and then just standing there. And that isn't true. This positive image of Livia and the juxtaposed negative one of Cleopatra did not simply entrench overnight. It took years, decades even, of work for Livia to become the embodiment of moderation, stability, and of Roman comeliness. Unless she had agreed with this and bought into it, it never would have worked. There are plenty of examples in this period, as we will see in fact in future episodes, of members of Octavian's family being instructed to act in a certain way in accordance with his propaganda message and then simply disobeying it. <coughs> Julia! <coughs> Livia came from a political family with a long tradition of being at the very fore of Roman politics. She knew what it meant to be married to a powerful man, what it meant to support him. She knew that it was in her interest as much as his, as her life and fortunes at this moment were very much bound up in his success. He was relying on her here to do her part, and she was willing to do what was required. So with his wife and sister's help, Octavian had crushed Mark Antony in the propaganda war, and all he needed now was a pretext to settle it all with swords. He got this finally in 32 BCE, when Antony formally divorced Octavia, and then his will was revealed, after it had been illegally stolen by Octavian, it has to be noted, where it was revealed that Antony was leaving most of his fortune to Cleopatra and planned to be buried in Alexandria. This was the final straw, and the Senate declared war. This conflict is known to history as the Final War of the Roman Republic, which is a good name, 
though really the Republic had been pretty dead for a few years by this point. As with the War of the Liberators, this clash between the west and east ends of the Empire was largely fought in Greece, between Octavian and his best friend and tactical genius Marcus Agrippa, and the forces of Antony and Cleopatra. The decisive battle of the war was a naval engagement at Actium, where Octavian's navy won a crushing victory. Antony fled back to Alexandria, but soon found the city surrounded. After one last gasp, Sally was defeated, both Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide. And, just like that, Octavian was the last man standing. He was the master of the Roman Empire. But he was not yet an emperor. Rome had a very strong natural aversion to monarchy, and so any suggestion that a man wished to make himself a king was always treated with the utmost suspicion. It was a classic smear and often led to armed uprising and murderous attack, as Julius Caesar found to his cost. There are, though, a couple of important differences between what Octavian did and what Caesar did that explain why the former succeeded and the other was murdered. The first is a simple matter that, after so many years of repression, proscriptions and civil war, there really weren't all that many enemies in positions of power to resist him. But that alone can't explain it. You can always create new opponents. The bigger reason is that Octavian played the game far more cleverly. He took his time. He made no sudden moves. Nearly half a decade after his victory over Antony, he renounced his dictatorial powers in 27 BCE, pledging to restore the Republic, and gave back to the Senate many of their former powers. In response, the Senate dramatically begged him instead to take the position of consul for life, to which, of course, he readily agreed. They also bestowed upon him two very important and special titles. The first is Princeps, which loosely translates to First Citizen, a title usually given to the most respected statesman in Rome, but here was largely a sign of Octavian being seen, in principle at least, as a first among equals. Not a king, no, 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 just the first citizen. And this title gave its name to the whole period of Roman history, as the era from now to the 3rd century CE is known as the Principate. But the second appellation bestowed is perhaps most important. They named him Augustus, or Divinely Favoured One, and that, essentially, became his name from now on. Some sources alternate between that and Caesar, but the name Octavian almost never turns up from here on in. And so, for the sake of ease, that is what I will call him from here on out. Symbolically, at least, this was the moment when the Empire was born, and most historians date it to here. But that wasn't really recognised at the time. And that is important to recognise, We know that the Imperial Roman period lasted for 1,500 years, from Augustus to the fall of Constantinople. But to the senators who voted on these measures, they were simply recognising the status quo and acknowledging this man as their ruler. He could still die or fall from favour at any time and the Republic be restored. It had happened with Sulla, and to an extent with Caesar. They had no reason to think that this time would be any different. As for Livia, she was still just plain old Livia. She did not receive any special title of her own. She had, of course, already been elevated quite significantly after those decrees that I talked about earlier, but Augustus had no plans to elevate her any further at this time. That would smack far too much of hereditary rule and monarchy, 
exactly the sort of thing for which he had been slamming Antony and Cleopatra. This did not mean that she didn't still hold a position, though, at the very height of Roman society. She did, but she had no formal title. She was not known as Empress to the people at the time. That is simply a title that historians have given her. But despite this, there is almost nothing that Augustus cared more about than the image of his family. To them, their image absolutely reflected upon his. Even after the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra, they had to be whiter than white, the embodiment of perfection, honourable, chaste, humble, and sober in tastes. Part of this is reflected in their homes. We associate the title of emperor with lavish palaces, gorgeous decorations, and ornate furnishings. But the home of the first family was not like that during the life of Augustus. Again, as a reaction to any comparison of him with Cleopatra. Suetonius, who visited it personally, wrote that it, quote, was remarkable neither for size nor elegance, having but short colonnades with columns of Alban stone and rooms without any marble decorations or handsome pavements. For more than 40 years, too, he used the same bedroom in winter and summer, although he found the city unfavourable to his health in the winter, yet continued to winter there. For retirement, he went most frequently to places by the sea and the islands of Campania or to the towns near Rome. He disliked large and sumptuous country palaces. His own villas, which were modest enough, he decorated not so much with handsome statues and pictures as with terraces, groves and objects noteworthy for their antiquity and rarity. The simplicity of his furniture and household goods may be seen from couches and tables, many of which are scarcely fine enough for a private citizen. Except on special occasions he wore common clothes for the house, made by his sister, wife, daughter, or granddaughters. Remember what I said in an early episode about the importance of the loom in Roman society? Catch those references for his female family making his clothes? Can you really imagine Livia, a high-born Roman nobleman, making her husband's clothes when she had a whole heap of slaves to do it for her? Of course she wouldn't. But that is the sort of propaganda that worked. So who lived in the imperial palace with Augustus, Livia, and all their slaves? Well, there was all of their surviving children, who were, of course, Tiberius and Drusus on Livia's side, and Julia on Augustus's. There was also Octavia and her five children, which included four daughters and one son, Marcus Claudius Marcellus, not to mention four other children of Mark Antony, whom she took in, one from his union with Fulvia and three with Cleopatra. It is estimated that there were at least 12 children of the imperial family running around this villa. Livia and Augustus stood at the head of this great household, and wished to project an image of the perfect Roman family. I would like to end today's episode, though, by checking in on the two members of the family that Livia cared about the most, her sons, Tiberius and Drusus, because their lives and fortunes are going to be playing a big part in future episodes. So the last time we checked in with Livia's boys was in 33 BCE, when their father died and they came back to live with their mother and stepfather. Now, stories of Tiberius' childhood and early life are always going to be affected by hindsight, the fact that most historians writing about it know what he is going to grow into. I just wanted to give you that warning from the start. Also, given that Tiberius was not only the eldest brother by four years, but would also go on to have the longer life and inherit the imperial crown, 
there is understandably more information on his early life than there is of Drusus. They would have begun their education while living with her father, and then continued it while in Livia's care. Velis Patakuras writes the following about Tiberius. Quote, Nurtured by the teachings of eminent preceptors, a youth equipped in the highest degree with the advantages of birth, personal beauty, commanding presence, and excellent education combined with native talents, Tiberius gave early promise of becoming the great man he now is, and already by his look revealed the prince. Bit of the benefit of hindsight being shown there, not to mention this account being written before Tiberius's reputation and reign really took a nosedive. Remember, though, that Tiberius and Drusus's time in formal education was before the formation of the Principate and the establishment of Augustus as consul for life. Even if it had, there was no guarantee that his rule would last, nor that he would pass it on to a relative. And this is before we get to the fact that Augustus had not adopted either of them. So even if he did pass the throne off to a relative, it would not necessarily go to them. It would be a mistake to imagine Tiberius and Drusus being groomed for that kind of absolute power. They had the Claudian and Livian name to trade on, as well as a powerful list of clients operated by their mother and stepfather, not to mention their immense wealth. But for now, it was nothing more than that. This is perhaps also shown in the choice of Tiberius' first wife. In 32 BCE, at the age of 10, he was betrothed to Vipsania Agrippina, the eldest daughter of Marcus Agrippa, Augustus's great friend and general. More than anyone else, Agrippa had placed Augustus on the throne, and so this marriage was a combination of reward for services rendered and an opportunity to bind Augustus's close circle together more tightly. If Tiberius was being bred to rule, then one imagines that he would have been married a little more strategically, but this kind of marriage was fairly typical in normal Roman power politics. Livia's role in the match is a little unclear, but I think it is fair to say that this was very much her husband's choice. It benefited and would have pleased him far more than it did his wife, who probably would have preferred a match with someone a little more noble. Agrippa may have been a fantastic general and a true and loyal friend, but he was only a novus homo, and his wife only of equestrian rank. That wasn't really the kind of match that a Claudian was supposed to make. But, in the Roman world, marriages don't really seem to have been forever. At least this one was within the imperial circle, which means that her son would still be close by. Importantly, though, for Livia, what the return of her children to her care would have done is give her back a new purpose. With Augustus not being their father, there was no guarantee of their future prosperity. He was not beholden to them. He owed them nothing. It was up to her to promote their interests and protect them. But more than that, her role within the state was very vague and amorphous. No one really knew what it was she could or should do. She was defining a role here, but she equally had to tread carefully. She didn't want to intrude into traditionally masculine spaces. She didn't want to be Cleopatra. But in being her son's champion, she found a way of making her voice heard. They were at the very forefront of her mind, there was so often her reason for doing pretty much everything that she would do in her life. This is something to be applauded, but as we shall see next week, it will become why she has also been vilified.
we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.